First thing I want you to do is clear your mind of the movie of the Ten Commandments. I doubt seriously that Moses looked anything like Charleston Heston. But we have here this morning all of Israel, at least two million people, and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. A thick cloud covers the mountaintop, and we have God himself declaring, speaking to the people directly, not through Moses, and there is nothing lost in the translation whatsoever as God speaks Hebrew to the Hebrews. Isn't that amazing? God knows all of our languages. <laughs> so let's read Exodus chapter 20, and we'll start out just by reading the first two verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God has declared his ownership of the nation Israel. And really, as our creator, he's the ownership of all humanity. But he says, I am the Lord, you, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage. God owning Israel has a requirement of them. And he says, and here's what I'm going to require of you because you belong to me. And then we have basically the Ten Commandments that are given. Back in the 90s, Ted Turner thought the Ten Commandments were too restrictive, too archaic. So Ted distributed his ten voluntary initiatives. But you know... God is not Ted Turner, and so God does not hesitate to tell us what he demands of man. It's interesting that all civilized societies have a mixture of the Ten Commandments. Murder is wrong in all societies. Kindness is good. We all, men, women, and children, have an obligation to the family unit in most civilized societies. Adultery is wrong. Sex outside of the marriage is bad. Stealing is wrong. Justice is good. In the Muslim world, they have a very harsh penalty for those that are caught stealing you lose your hand. But the universal morality that is out there only proves that God is placed in the heart of man to do right. Even before God gave the Ten Commandments, he had already put it in the hearts of man what was right and what was wrong. No one has to tell us when we've sinned against God. God has provided 
us with the conscience that the Holy Spirit directs. And if our conscience isn't severed, and you can sin to the point where your conscience is severed, but if you haven't severed your conscience between you and God, the Holy Spirit is faithful to convict us of sin. Nobody has to tell you. The Holy Spirit tells you. Now, Satan condemns us, but the Holy Spirit convicts us. And there's a great difference between the two. Satan is trying to push us away from God through guilt. And the Holy Spirit is drawing us to repentance to restore that relationship with God. And that's how you can always tell who's moving upon your heart. If it's Satan, he's trying to make you feel guilty and separated from God. The Holy Spirit wants you to restore that relationship to God with repentance. But let's read verse 3, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is not saying you can have other gods but just don't treat them as well as you treat me. No, we are to have not any, no other gods, even secondary gods before the living God. Now, I heard a, what I considered a wise, godly man declare, show me your checkbook and I will show you your God. Well, now we can say, show me your debit card or whatever. <laughs> but where we spend our money and what captures our free time just may be our God. And on that subject, you would be surprised to hear some of the excuses I hear as to why a Christian does not give his money, or his tithes and offerings to God. Let me just say this. If you struggle with giving cheerfully, and that's the only way you really can give, then you struggle with God being God. We do not beg or plead for money here. We have our little offering boxes in the back. And I openly declare to you, our needs are met, all right? <laughs> We're okay. We have a little savings account for the church, and our bills are all paid on time. But we do not beg and plead for money here. I think it's wrong to do that. But as Christians, our giving can be a direct indicator of what God means to us. I can only say this, trust God with your finances because he is trustworthy. I've proved it time and again in my own life. Second commandment, verses four through six, you shall not make yourself a craven image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children 
to third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Making an idol, making a relic to remind you of God shows that you have lost consciousness of God's presence. So you have to remind yourself with some little idol or something. There is a progression that goes with idol worship. You make an image, you make an idol, and it looks pretty good. So then you bow down to this work of your own hand. <laughs> and this leads you to serve the idol that you have made for yourself. But God says, a man cannot serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one, despising the other, and you cannot serve God and mammon. Pretty straightforward. And then we have the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I personally think this is quite possibly the least understood of the commandments. In the past, I have thought that cursing, using the name of the Lord your God in vain, was taking his name in vain, and that is true, definitely true. And we hear the name of our God being invoked upon anything that man feels they don't like or is a displeasure to them. Now bear with me. I am not cursing, okay? <laughs> but if you live in this world, you have heard the name of God taken in a profane way if you live in this world. We hear things like, God, damn those politicians. God, damn those gas prices. And you hear it. It's on TV. It's everywhere. And what a person is doing, they're asking God's judgment on the thing that they do not like. And they connect God with damning something, and it's done so common that it's hardly even noticed by the world. But yet as a believer, and I'm sure you suffer from this too, I am offended and I notice when people use God's name wrongly. I notice it. And one of my pet peeves is, oh my God. Drives me crazy. <laughs> the acronym, OMG, it's text, it's emailed, it's on Facebook, you can twit it, <laughs> and it is perhaps used more than any other acronym, OMG. And all it is is people are taking the name of our Lord God in vain electronically. 
Recently, I heard a, a friend of mine use the term Jesus. And it was to express annoyance or surprise. And he would say, oh, Jesus. And I thought, how sad. That is taking the name of the Lord in vain. They're not praying. They're not honoring God. And these are examples of people taking the Lord's name in vain. But I want you to consider one other one. And this one is a little more personal and a little more close to home. If you identify yourself as a Christian, as a believer, and to say you are a Christian means you're a follower of Christ, and if you align yourself with God and his son, and you do not look to God to guide your life, you have in essence taken his name upon yourself in vain. That's pretty strong. If you align yourself as a Christian, call yourself a Christian, and you do not let God rule your life, you are taking his name upon yourself in vain. That's strong. Jesus said in Luke 6, why do you say, Lord, Lord, an admission that he is God, that he is deity, that he is supreme, and then do not do the things that I command you? Why do you do that? Jesus asked that question. Why would you do that? Jesus also said, if you love me, obey me. Our obedience to the Lord is the key to any expression of love that we want to try to show our Lord. He don't ask you to do all these sacrifices, all these different things. He simply says, obey me. You want to show your love towards me? Obey me. And ignorance of God's commands for our life can be a great deception that we allow. Now, we do not always know or understand what God's will is on a particular situation. How many times have you prayed, God, show me your will on this? I know I do it all the time. But God has given, they're written down, his commandments. They're given. And if we will put his commandments in place in our life, guess what? You're going to find yourself doing the will of God. They're his commandments. He doesn't back off of them. Let's read verses 8 through 11 now. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it is the Sabbath of, to the Lord, your God, and in it you shall do no work. You, nor your sons, nor your daughters, nor your male servants, nor your female servants, not your cattle, not, not the stranger who is within your gates, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, 
and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The owner of Chick-fil-A, S. Truett Cathy, died this past week. He was 93. He was the founder of Chick-fil-A, and working on Sunday was contrary to his Southern Baptist roots, so guess what? Chick-fil-A remains closed on Sunday. It kind of makes you like Chick-fil-A just because of their stance. <laughs> As Christians, we set aside Sunday. It's an old school Christian observance. The Jews have their Sabbath. The Seventh-day Adventists, they also observe Saturday. And there's numerous polls that are taken on behavior, and they tell us that observing one day of rest each week is good for us. It's good for us mentally, and it's good for us physically. It lets us get away from the hassle of the daily routine. But God himself set a pattern of resting after six days of creation. And he did it for us. Our culture, our society, for the most part, observes Sunday. So we Christians respond by worshiping on Sunday. Sunday also happened to be the day that Jesus rose from the grave and resurrection is tied into our worship on Sunday. But Jesus had something to say regarding the Sabbath. And he said, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus, by doing works of healing and other necessary good deeds on the Sabbath, he irritated the Pharisees so much that it was the final straw and the religious leaders of his day turned on him, seeking to destroy him for him doing good deeds on the Sabbath. So turn with me to Matthew 12, and we'll look at what Jesus had to say concerning the Sabbath. Matthew 12. We're going to look at the first eight verses, then we'll look at some more. But Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and, he, and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read where David did what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread that was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even 
of the Sabbath. The disciples are hungry. They're walking with Jesus, and they begin to walk by these wheat fields or grain fields, and they begin to take off a few grains, and they begin to husk the grain in their hands and blow away the shaft, and they eat this raw wheat, which is nourishing. And they're doing this on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are offended by Jesus' disciples. And they say, look, Jesus, your disciples are doing unlawful things on Sabbath. And Jesus says, hey, have you not read? Let me paraphrase that. Why do you Pharisees not know the scriptures is what Jesus has said to them. Now, they prided themselves in knowing the scriptures. And Jesus says, why have you not read the scriptures this is definitely a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then Jesus speaks of King David. David entered the synagogue with his men and he ate the showbread from the altar that was designated for the priest. Jesus continues, eating this bread was okay for the priest. The priests were allowed to profane the Sabbath in the temple, and they were blameless. And then Jesus speaks of himself. There stands one here greater than the temple. And the Pharisees missed the whole point of the law concerning Sabbath. And then Jesus said, For I declare, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If only these Pharisees would have known God's heart. But their religion has took them away from God. And there stands God talking to them and they don't even know it. But their view of the law would have been completely different if they'd have known who Jesus was. In verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You have to understand that Jesus, as God here on this earth, is free to do anything he pleases on Sabbath. The commandments concerning the Sabbath is the only command of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament. Take note of that. And I find it very interesting that some Christian denominations find the Sabbath laws to be tenets of the faith or their belief system. But Jesus, he didn't stop there. He continued. So let's read verses 9 through 14. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, the Pharisees asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on Sabbath? And they said this where they might accuse him. And then he said to them, 
What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Jesus enters a synagogue, and there's a lame man there with a withered hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? <laughs> and they asked this question not to understand, but to accuse. You ever have somebody ask you a question and you know it's loaded? <laughs> oh, if you were a pastor, you would. But anyway... And I ask always, do you really want to know, are you wanting to argue? Well, let's get down to the basics. <laughs> are you asking that question because you really desire insight, or are you just wanting to make a point? But it's not ever a wise thing to argue with God. You lose. <laughs> and Jesus responds, if you as a man, as a human being, would help an animal, a sheep, out of a pit, how can you say anything? And now here is a message, and it's a message for PETA. Has anyone else, and anyone else who esteems animal life above human life? And believe me, uh, it's out there. I heard an animal lover on radio this week say, you're furry kids. And he was referring to dogs and cats. And I said, not my kids. <laughs> and Jesus says, how much more value is a man than a sheep? And then we have Jesus' conclusion. He says, therefore, it is lawful to do good on Sabbath. And Jesus proceeds to heal the man's hand, doing good on Sabbath. And the Pharisees rejoiced at this good work of Jesus and said, oh, isn't he a good man? No, no. Because Jesus did good, what do they want to do? They want to destroy him. That is a tragedy. We have an evil reaction to Jesus doing good. The Sabbath laws are well entrenched in Israel as a nation today, even though most of the nation is atheistic. Travel there and you will experience the prohibitions that they put on the Sabbath. They have Sabbath elevators where you can get in and it goes up, automatically stops every floor, and you don't have to push the button because pushing the button would mean work. But understand this. 
as believers, as Christians, we are allowed to experience the goodness of Jesus on any day of the week, even Sabbath. But there is a principle here, and I think we, we need to apply this principle to our life. Work six days and rest a seventh. Now, don't let anyone tell you what that seventh day is, but do take one day of rest. It gives you a good break that you need each and every week of your life. That's why God gave us the Sabbath. And for most Christians, our Sabbath is Sunday. But don't get legalistic about it. If our society chose Wednesday to be the day that we would all take a break from our labors, then guess what? We would gather on Wednesday. <laughs> Whatever. Don't get all hung up on the legalistic matters of Sabbath. Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand, and we'll close in prayer. And we'll look at the rest of the commandments next week. Father God, I want to thank you for setting us free of the restrictions that mo many people in the world put on the Sabbath. And you told us that you're Lord of the Sabbath. And it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. So we want to be doing good, not only on the Sabbath, but on every day, Lord. And thank you that you desire not sacrifice. You don't desire that. You just desire our hearts be towards you. Thank you for that freedom. Thank you for that liberty, Lord. So let us apply the resting of one day, but let us not get legalistic about it. Thank you for that freedom, Lord. Thank you for the freedom we have in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.